Um, I really want to tackle three things today. Uh, what submission to authority looks like when a, when a government's unjust, um, and what it looks, and what lines should we at, like resist and not obey an unjust government? And then finally, just to kind of talk about some of the bigger questions. You've, you've probably heard some of the jargon going around. People talk about like, well, maybe you haven't, but the jargon is going around. There's different spheres of authority. There's family and education and government. The government can't touch family or, you know, that kind of conversation. So I want to talk about some of the different options out there so you can kind of like know what they are, where they come from, and how they actually relate to the Bible and to Christian theology in general. Because it's interesting. You hear these ideas, like someone will talk about sphere sovereignty or like, obeying the law of God or whatever, and you're like, okay, those are weird words that sound okay, but where does that even come from? So not so much as a criticism or anything, but just to kind of tell you what they are, and you can ask me questions about how, if you've heard those or how to think through them. Does that sound good? And uh, feel free again to like, just talk, and if, if I'm saying something that is like, yeah, we all get this, why? I'll just, just leave me, and I'll move on. <laughs> it's fine. It won't really hurt my feelings because... I'm here to kind of be a soundboard and hopefully to have something to say that could benefit you. So you won't hurt my feelings if you're like, you know, we actually spent 30 minutes on this last week. Can you talk about something different? I'm like, okay. <laughs> it's, it's for your benefit. So I'm here just to, just to be a person talking. So how to understand the question of um, when we should, how, how, how to think about obeying an unjust government and when we should say, well, maybe we shouldn't. So how do we answer that question? And I think the first thing to do is, you could give all the answers that people have concluded over time, but I think it's useful to actually look at the sources of those answers, which is basically the Bible. And uh, so what I'm going to do is just look at some very limited places in Scripture, so Daniel, Romans 13, and 1 Peter 2, just to kind of have some like um, hooks to hang our thoughts upon. And then I'll be a little bit more, like, teachy and give, like, the answers, if that makes sense. But I, one of the fun things about learning is, like, you kind of, you don't fully know the answer and you're kind of getting to it. And then when you give it, maybe it, it makes better sense to you. But if I just tell you immediately my own personal conclusions, you might be like, well, how did you get there? So maybe we'll look at some Bible verses and we'll see if you can follow me into my conclusions. And if not, it's fine. That's what conversation will be for afterwards. You don't have to believe everything that I believe. But you do have to believe what the Bible says. So we'll work on that together. Um, I, I find Daniel a really interesting... Um, you can go anywhere in the Bible. There's lots of different places. But Daniel's just kind of a useful one to go to because it's kind of a, a relatively short book of the Bible. It has a lot of relevant information there. But also the setting is really fascinating if you think about this. So what you have is Nebuchadnezzar goes to Judah, um, basically besieges the uh, Jerusalem, takes out, uh, I guess he kind of robs the temple there, uh, brutalizes the people, and then exiles them. And then you have the, the people of God living in exile in Babylon. So they are living in exile in a home that is not their true home, and they're looking for the promise of God to return to the promised land. And in the meantime, they have to figure out how to live under what is by definition an unjust government, right? Like if someone came into Canada, conquered and exiled you to like say, I don't know, Russians making anything up. You would say like, well, yeah, now that I'm living overseas, it's not just. And yet as Christians, we live in a pretty similar world, right? We're um, exiles and sojourners here. We are under King Jesus, but there are definitely other powers and forces here that make us feel uncomfortable. There's thrones, powers, principalities, and so on. The prince of the power of the air. And we're waiting for our call back to the promised land, which we just call the heaven or the new heavens and new earth. And so I think Daniel is a book that teaches us how to live in Babylon or Canada. <laughs> like how to live in a place that is not our true home, but still is a place that we have to look out for and to make, uh, make do here. Where uh, Jeremiah tells the exiles to kind of look out for the welfare and peace of the city in which they find themselves. Well, that's kind of us in Canada, right? It's not our true and final home. Our citizenship's in heaven, Paul reminds us, but we're here. So there's, there's a setting that I find, I mean, given that God wrote the Bible, I'm just going to say it's intentional. <laughs> like God knew that Christ would come, the church would be a sojourners among the world. And I think Daniel is a book, not only for those before Christ, but in particular, the Holy Spirit knew it would be read by people like us. I think that's a kind of a, an easy thing to say. And so here, I'm actually taken by um, four responses of people in this book and maybe one observation. So I just want to walk through those four responses and observation of just different things that happen. So in chapter 1, you have Daniel and three young men. 
By the way, do you remember their names? Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah? Yeah, Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego, right? That's we, all, we all remember the names that they were given by the, the Babylonians, but not their Hebrew names. Isn't that funny? Uh, because I would agree, I, I actually, I, I remember their Babylonian names too. I only know that answer because I looked at my computer screen. Hananiah, <laughs> Mishael, and Azariah. It's so funny, but that's their Hebrew names, and so they're kind of renamed, right? Like they're in their subjugation to an unjust government, they're renamed. And we kind of use those names, which is fine. I, I probably because ve- I think VeggieTales does it, and of course, we get most of our theology from VeggieTales, especially when you have like young kids, because that's where that's where you uh, that's where you find like the really deep truths, right? Um. So it's interesting. So after they're exiled, these four, uh, they they don't do seditious things. They're not planning a rebellion and so on, um, and yet. They do stand in their convictions, so they're asked to eat food that they don't want to eat, whatever that is exactly, if it's not kosher, or they feel like it's unclean, or whatever. And so, what happens? Well, in verse 11 of Daniel 1, Daniel talks to a guard, uh, or a, a leader of some sort, that was placed over Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. A steward, as it were. And Daniel says... Can we eat something different? So Daniel and his three friends encounter a problem. There's some sort of unjust eating happening. I'm not sure all the details, but it's something that's against their kind of religious conscience. And instead of just not doing it, the first thing they do is they ask somebody in authority to go to ball for them and to seek an exception for them against a larger injunction from a greater authority, which would be, I think, the chief eunuch in context. So it says, please test your servant for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine us and see what happens. And they look better. And so the lesser magistrate, the lesser leader, the the person set over them is like, okay, fine. Everyone will be okay with this. So you might think of it this way, like you're living in the city of Hamilton and there's some bylaw you dislike or whatever. So you go to a city councilor and be like, hey, look, Give me an exception, it'll actually be better and safer. And they say, fine, and you do it. That would never happen in Hamilton, by the way. But, uh, <laughs> but, they, but they give you some exception, you do it. Like, they're like, okay, that's fine. That's the kind of thing that's happening. So you're accessing someone within authority to go to bat for you against a larger prohibition against you under the same authority. So the authority be under Nebuchadnezzar, the, the government as a whole. And you can kind of see this in the Bible, too. I mean, the, the opposite or a similar thing happens when Paul is before... Um, Festus, Faustus, Festus, yeah, Festus in Acts 25, and he appeals to Caesar. Now, he appeals to a greater authority, because Festus is a lesser authority under Caesar in this case. But uh, Paul knows that if he appeals to Caesar, he's going to get a judgment from an authority that is at least valid. And so he doesn't believe Festus is an appropriate authority. They'll give him a fair shake. So he goes above his head. Daniel kind of goes below the head of the chief eunuch, where Paul goes above the head of, the, of, the, of Festus. And so you do see this biblical pattern in which uh, there are responses to sort of an unjust or or uncomfortable situation where you actually go to someone else in authority. So probably the more practical one in Ontario would be MPPs, right? Like if there's something going on you dislike, you call your MPP or someone like a city councilor or whatever, whatever level you're at, or at your school board. Like there's someone at my church who's on um, uh, Hamilton's school board, so you could talk to her, you know? (laughs) And they can at least go to bat for you to help you work through a situation. That's a pattern that happens in scripture that I think is, is a useful way to think about what it might mean to resist an unjust or at least an uncomfortable situation. So that's one response. A second one's in Daniel 3. Now, this is a fascinating chapter because, you know, you might hear the argument, the state sometimes deifies itself and makes a God with absolute power. And you're like, nah. But then you go, oh, actually... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar makes a statue of himself and says, worship it. <laughs> like, if, it, if a state was really going to make itself, like, in replacement of God, I mean, this is, this is it. This is the most on-the-nose example possible. Uh, so, basically, Nebuchadnezzar says, I think it's a great idea to make a statue of myself, call all of our leaders in the, the area that we're at to come to the plains of, I think it's the plains of Duran, and when they get there, I'm going to make them all bow down and worship this statue. So, that's pretty extreme, I might say. Chapter 3, verse 2. 
King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to attend the dedication of the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue the king had set up. Then they stood before the statue Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And basically, there is a call to, to bow down and to worship it. Now, what's interesting in this setting is that Meshach, Radchak, and Abednego, uh, the three, uh, all come to the plains at the behest of King Nebuchadnezzar. So they are okay with listening to the injunction to come to the statue. So they, okay, you know, King commands me, fine, I'll, I'll walk up to these plains. And so, so you could see this is kind of like their external. I mean, you work for the king. You go where they go. If they tell you to go to Ottawa or to Toronto, you just go, right? You, if you go to Bay Street, for, you go to Bay Street, but you don't bow down at Bay Street, right? So, so they go insofar as they're commanded. I mean, there's a proper authority. Fine, you can control the direction that my feet walk in because I'm submitted under you. You can see that. And yet, there's a, there's a line they won't cross. So if you go to verse 18... Um, so basically, they're not going to bow down before and worship it. And then they say, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but even if God does not rescue us, in verse 18, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. So they, they don't worship it. And I think here you can see a basic distinction developing. Okay, a proper authority tells you to do something kind of uncomfortable, like walk up to an adulterous statue. Okay, I guess. <laughs> like if the police tell you to do that, you can, you can literally walk up to it. You can be in its area. You can be close to something. But if the policeman says, bow down before parliament and call it God, you say, well, with all due respect, I cannot worship this human institution because... God is my God, and my conscience is bound to him. And so you begin to see a distinction between you obey, they're obeying the external kind of commands, but their heart, their faith, their worship, even the, the physicality of bowing down, because that signifies worship, that can't, they can't do that. That's a line that's uncrossable for them. Third, and this is my observation, so this is not so much a response. I mean, it is a res there's responses in this too, so I don't know if that can those categories are super helpful. But anyways, a third thing. A third thing is like the most abstract way to say it. But anyways, I observe in chapter 4 of Daniel something interesting. And it's that God both lays low Nebuchadnezzar and raises him up. Because God reigns over all the earth. He's the king of heaven and earth. And... Nebuchadnezzar doesn't reign apart from God. In fact, uh, what we find, if you go to chapter 4, and in, so basically in this chapter, he, Nebuchadnezzar gets really proud of his power, and God turns him into an animal. Uh, sorry, he makes him act like an animal. <laughs> it's not like Narnia or something like that. Uh, he makes him act like an animal, like he makes him eat from the grass, until Nebuchadnezzar um, knows that God is Lord of all. So in 425, we see, um, okay, verse 25 of chapter 4 of Daniel. You will be driven away from people to live with the wild animals. You will feed on grass like cattle and be drenched with dew from the sky for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms and he gives them to anyone he wants. Okay, think about what was just said there. Nebuchadnezzar crossed the Fertile Crescent, probably in an ark. So, I'm trying to think, I guess modern day Iraq, kind of like above it like this. Which if you're on recording, you can't see, but it's an ark. And came down into Jerusalem, besieged, sorry, Judah, besieged Jerusalem. Uh, kills, conquers, sacks the temple. Pretty brutally, I mean, relatively brutally, anyways, it's the ancient world, I don't think it was friendly, brings them, displaces them, and brings them to a land that they don't know, renames them, 
causes them to do his bidding. And I'm going to guess they didn't love to do his bidding. And we learned that God says that he is king of kings of the earth. Well, a year later, this actually happens in Nebuchadnezzar. He becomes proud, and he becomes like an animal. It's like a lycanthropy is like the, being a werewolf, right? He, be, he became like an animal. He lived like an animal. And you might say, if you want to be a little cheeky, that until any of us recognize that God is king of kings over all the earth, we might act a little bit like animals too. Once he recognizes that God is king, uh, this uh, curse is reversed upon him. And you can see this in chapter 4 and verse 34 and following. So the end of those days, I think of seven periods of time, so I don't know if that's seven years. Didn't look at that too carefully, unfortunately, but it's, it's a period of time. He looked up, or didn't look at it, he looked up to heaven and, and he says, my sanity returned to me, verse 34. Then I praised the Most High and honored and glorified him who lives forever. Then he says in verse, the end of verse 34, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? So, maybe he says a bit more after that. I think you see something that's important for us to recognize. The whole Bible teaches this is just one example of it. It's God genuinely reigns. I mean, when Christ rose from the dead, he took a seat at the right hand of the Father from on high. He actually reigns now. Now, of course, at the resurrection, the fullness of things, it's, there's, there's a full ex experience of it. But... He does reign. Um, he calls Assyria his axe. Uh, Proverbs says that he turns the head of the king, or the heart, the head, I believe, head of the king. He lays low nations and raises them up. In his providence, due to the sin of Israel, Babylon came and took them away to exile. But if you've read Deuteronomy or 1 Kings 8, or other passages, you already know but this was part of the covenantal promise, I suppose you could say, that if you sin and basically forsake my law and so on, you're going to go into exile. So this is basically God following through. So if you had a child and you say, don't hit your sister over and over, or you'll be punished. If you never follow through with that, they keep hitting your, his sister. <laughs> so there's a sense in which, this is God kind of following through, but he uses means. He uses, in this case, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. Not to justify everything that Nebuchadnezzar does. It's not that he, obviously, making the statue wasn't good, and that's why the three are honored for not worshiping it, and so on. And God actually ends up humbling Nebuchadnezzar for his pride and makes him like an animal. And so, actually, you can see another interesting principle is that God keeps rulers accountable. Because Nebuchadnezzar didn't have free reign to do what he wanted. He thought he was, you know, basically a god. He could do whatever he wanted. It was all in his power. And God made, elevated him from like, being like this heavenly divine figure to being uh, someone who ate from the ground. <laughs> like, he brought him to the dust from heaven. And so, God actually does keep leaders accountable for their actions. They are not, there's no free reign. There's no unjudgment. And sometimes we don't always see it, but we know ultimately everyone appears before the, the throne room of God. So sometimes you hear the argument that, well, a government is unjust, like is ungodly, unpious, and evil because, and, and they're not submitting to Jesus because they don't say, follow particular laws that are found in the Mosaic Code or something like that. To me, that doesn't make a lot of sense because God reigns now. It would be better if our leaders were Christians, I admit. Way better. But God still reigns. He's still king. I never want to say that the Canadian government is actually not under the kingship of Jesus. It clearly is. But people sin. There is always going to be a mixture of, mix, mixture of justice and injustice. 
Some of you are parents, and I'm going to say if you're a Christian, you're attempting to be a good parent, but you probably sin, sin sometimes too. <laughs> you maybe do things that you ought not to do. You're an unjust parent sometimes. And so I'm not sure that the presence of sin is evidence that God is no longer our king over us. It's simply the presence of our rebellious heart sinning in that moment. Anyway, another thing to look at, a fourth thing to look at, um, is when Darius, in chapter, I think it's chapter 6, commands that everybody not pray for 30 days to, um, to their gods, but only pray to him. And he's kind of tricked into it, but he makes this injunction. For 30 days, you can't pray to anyone but me, Darius says. Daniel thinks that that's unacceptable, as you might imagine. In verse 10 of chapter 6, he says, it says, When Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house. The windows in his upstairs room opened toward Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees, prayed, and gave thanks to his God as he had done before. So, as he has done before is probably a key thing. This is his pattern. It's what he always did. And you might say... That's kind of an odd response because you would think, well, if our government said you shouldn't do something that we call a crime, you might want to do it in a way that's less obvious, right? Like, why invite persecution, essentially? So if you're in a house church in Southeast Asia, for example, you still meet, it's public, but you probably don't want to have a big sign out your window that says, illegal house church here, bonk, bonk. You know, like it doesn't really, it's not like, you don't have to hide it per se, but it's, it's weird to invite someone to come. And so this might look like, well, what Daniel's doing is sort of just saying, I'll do whatever I want in the most public way possible. Maybe, but I think when you consider some important Bible verses that talk about how to pray specifically after you go into exile, you realize that Daniel is actually just following what the Bible says about how to worship. So, for example, when Solomon dedicates the temple in 1 Kings, he assumes in 1 Kings 8.29, for example, that you will pray towards the temple. And as recorded in 2 Chronicles 6.38, Solomon says, if or when Israel goes into, I think if Israel goes into exile, they must, quote, Pray toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house, so the house of the temple, that I have built for your name. So, it's actually commanded to pray in the direction of Jerusalem. So you, in this case, he opens the window and looks at the land, right? He's, that's what you're supposed to do. And in Daniel 9, when he prays, he knows that the temple is a place of redemption. At the very end, the whole prayer is actually is concluded with um, God kind of restoring the his salvific presence in the temple. And so the temple is the place of salvation. It's where God is, where God is known. So what Daniel's doing seems to be simply obeying what God commends for worship. He prays three times a day towards the temple, towards Jerusalem, because that's where God's salvation will be. And the Bible says that when you go into exile, you should do that. And so I actually see Daniel not so much like having like a big sign that says, I'm doing the illegal thing but rather just obeying what God says. So he prays that way. And it says, it's his pattern, right? He says it was he regularly did. Well, he probably felt like he needed to because that was the kind of worship that God asked of him. And so you don't see it, the text doesn't say anything like Daniel really wanted to test the government's mettle. It just says he did what he regularly did. And I think that accords with scripture. That's what Solomon says to do when you go into exile in Second Corinthians. Chronicles 6 and 1 Kings 8. And actually, if you read the Psalms, they're all about praying towards the temple. In fact, all the festivals are, you go towards the temple. In Psalm 27, David says, like, the one thing that I desire to do is gaze at the beauty of the Lord in his holy temple. It's hard for us to realize because after Christ comes, we're not, the temple is no longer a place, but we become the temple, right? So, but in the ancient Israel worship, going to the temple, sacrificing the temple, looking at the temple, 
remembering the temple. In Daniel 9, you'll see that the, re- the redemption happens at the temple. The temple is like where God is. It's the doorway to heaven kind of thing, right? Where Christ is our doorway to heaven, so we have open worship in a different way. And so Daniel is, is just doing what worship is. <laughs> you worship by looking towards the place where God is represented, the temple. So 1 Kings 8.29 and 2 Chronicles 6.38 were the two passages that I brought to your attention. And then Psalm 27.4 was the... But, I mean, you just read the Psalms. Like, you don't, <laughs> that's not the only place to go. <laughs> a lot of it has to do with the temple. So this is a clear case, I think, of conscience and prayer. Uh, David, or sorry, well, David too, but Daniel in context, yeah, he obeyed the king. He was a very good subject as far as he could. Just like the three, he would probably obey the general rules, go here, go there. But his conscience was bound to praying to God at the place where God said to pray, in the place where God will redeem them. And so... I think his conscience was bound here, and so he did not obey the explicit command of not praying to God for 30 days. So, if our federal government said, like, Christians, you're not allowed to pray to God, this would be an area where I would say the Bible clearly commands us to pray, (laughs) or at least assumes, like, when you pray, pray, like, it just, it's, it's, communion with God is that, but that's a distinguishable thing from the three who are able to walk to the statue. Like, so if our government said, you know, you're going to, like, this, this actually happened to Christians in history. If you're a Christian, you'll be taxed more heavily. So this, under, under Islam, for example, Christians pay the tax, but they pray to God. Uh, render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar. In this case, fine, you tax me an extra 500 bucks a year, whatever it is, to be a Christian, great. I don't, if that's what the rules are, fine. But... You're not touching my, my conscience, my prayer, my communion with God. You can't. I mean, honestly, if, if there was a command not to pray, like, how would you even enforce it? <laughs> like, you couldn't enforce it. Obviously, this was a setup to get Daniel in context, so that's why it was enforced. I believe uh, it says earlier that the, uh, the, pe- the people who told the king to do this kind of wanted to get at Daniel. Or at least that's the implication. Yeah, verse 4, four they wanted to get a charge against Daniel. So it was kind of a setup, right? So this is a pretty special case. A fifth uh, response I just want to look at is in Daniel 9. Uh, Daniel prays for redemption. There's basically, I think if I remember right, a promise in Jeremiah that basically after seven years, um, yeah, 9 verse 2 talks about Jeremiah, and the, uh, that the, the days of desolation in Jerusalem would be 70 years. I, I can't remember the verse offhand in Jeremiah, but basically there'll be like a 70 years of, of their exile kind of thing. And um, Daniel is, in obedience to this prophecy from Jeremiah, uh, praying to God in light of it. And it's interesting to look at his prayer, because he does a number of things that might surprise us, or might feel hard, like, odd to us. And the, it's, so they're violently exiled, the temple of God is despoiled, they're forced into... I mean, they probably are treated well enough in their jobs, but they're forced to work jobs they don't want to do and so on. And Daniel in this prayer doesn't kind of rail against Nebuchadnezzar or Darius. He doesn't uh, sort of attack the unjust actions of the government that's over them, the authorities over them. What he does do is confess his sin and the sins of his people. So in verse 5, we have sinned done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned away from your commands and ordinances. Or verse 20. The summary is, while I was speaking, praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my petition before the Lord, my God, concerning the holy mountain, and so on. That's just a summary of what he was doing. You see here, this is confession of sin. And you kind of recognize something like this in the New Testament where Peter says that... uh, um, Judgment, like, was it the judgment of God begins in like the household of God or something to that effect? There is a sense in which Daniel, despite all the external bad things that happened, is is looking within and among the people of God to understand their sin, their culpability. I think most of us are wired not to do that. Not that we're not sensitive to our own sin, but we're mostly wired, at least today, to kind of say, what are the external, like, what are the bad things that are happening to us now? Daniel's not denying that bad things happened to him. By the way, the whole book talks about that. 
It's not like you're living in a fantasy world. That's not the point. But his first sort of priority in prayer with God is his sort of, the people of God's relationship to God, what they have contributed, what, what's going on in their hearts. And this exile happened largely because they did wrong. They acted wickedly. And the goal of all this, by the way, just going to point you to this, you can kind of see verse 17 is this redemption of the temple. Verse 17, Therefore, our God, hear the prayer and petitions of your servant. Make your face shine on your desolate sanctuary for the Lord's sake. So the, the, for the, Lord's sake. So the sanctuary is the temple. And you see a similar thing in, in verse 20 when it talks about the holy mountain. Which again is, is, feeds into this whole thing that he's praying towards the temple because that's where he feels salvation will be. Now, I think you can kind of see in summary a number of things that are happening in Daniel. It's obviously an unjust government. Thoroughly. They, Demachnezzar literally built a statue to worship. Like, this is not, you know, hey, they make some mistakes. It's like, oh, that's pretty bad. Uh, but you can see that even the three in Daniel worked with um, what you might call, in the old-fashioned term, the lesser magistrate. They worked with the person over them to see if they can have exception to a general rule by the authorities. Uh, Paul worked with the greater magistrate, Caesar, and so on. That's his resistance. Uh, when they went to the statue, they said, you know what, you, you, uh, the, the three, you, yeah, of course, I'll submit to the sort of external demands of where I can walk. You know, like, it's kind of like you have to drive on the highway, you can't just drive anywhere you want type of thing. You drive according to the speed limit. Okay, fine. But they would not bow down and worship the, the idol. And so there's a sort of spiritual conscience, faith thing that totally belongs to you and to God. And there's no authority that can take that away from you on earth. I mean, realistically... You could be in prison, uh, and they could say, you can't have a relationship with God. <laughs> it's like, okay, try it. You know what I mean? Like, what are you going to do about it? Uh, I'll get this in, in a second. I'm running a bit long, so maybe I'll actually just get to it now. But Martin Luther, who's uh, kind of a well-known person from 500 years ago who helped reform the church, he made this uh, statement in a book called, or, uh, it's a book, but it's really a pamphlet, The Freedom of the Christian. And I'll summarize it, paraphrase it. Uh, the Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all men. And a Christian is a servant of all men. Are you like, what? <laughs> That's a contradiction. Until you read his argument. And his argument is, before God, we are freely justified. And our conscience is utterly clean. What can man do against me? Another heist or depths, nothing can affect you. Your worship, your conscience, your faith, God freely justifies you. No government can come and say, ha, you're not justified. You know, like it just doesn't work. They can put you in chains and you're still free in this sense because you're free before God. I mean, if, if you went to jail for the rest of your life for being a Christian and they said you're allowed out when you renounce Jesus Christ as Lord, you're, you're perfectly free woman at that point free justified freely they're not they're enslaved to sin and yet we're a servant of all people and what luther meant by that was yeah of course in all the external acts of your life you submit to authorities princes and powers all all the standard laws that you have to do but that doesn't touch your conscience that doesn't touch your faith that doesn't touch your prayer life and this ends up being a really key distinction in sort of the uh, Reformation, to think through how we relate to the state, how we relate to God. And in fact, you actually kind of see this in First Peter. Um, I think for the sake of time, I, I might just mention a couple things in Romans 13, but I won't look into it just because I realized it was already a little bit, a little bit long. But in First Peter 2, I want you just to think about these two statements. And they go like this. So First Peter, uh, yeah, First Peter two, verse thirteen says, "Submit to every human institution." And then verse sixteen says, um, "Submit or live as people who are free." <laughs> Think about that for a second. Submit to every institution and live freely. That's the kind of thing that Luther was getting at. Yeah, you honor the emperor, fear God. Like you, there are these, there's these two kind of modes of our citizenships in heaven, but we're exiles on earth. Uh, 
our soul, our, our faith, our conscience, our prayers bound to God, but we pay tax to Caesar. You know, Romans 13, give taxes to whom taxes are due. Um, you, you don't, you, you, drive, you, you drive the speed limit, uh, <laughs> you, but uh, you, you can pray while you're driving. No one can stop you. I mean, they could try, but like, what are they, like, what, what are they going to do? Uh, really. Um, so this is a way that you're both free and submitting. You're a perfectly free Lord of all men. Well, at the same time, because in Christ you're freed by conscience. And at the same time, you submit and serve all people. You lay down your life for others out of love. You, you, go, you walk the extra mile, Jesus says. You turn the other cheek. You give your cloak even. By the way, walking the extra mile probably implies you're captured by the Romans as a, as a prisoner and they're forcing you on a march. It's not like a good thing. Giving your cloak would be very valuable in that world. It's not necessarily an easy thing to do. When you read, let me just put it this way. Maybe to simplify things, some of the, the conversations that we've probably seen around submission and resistance Listen to those, listen to a podcast, read a book, whatever you do, and then read the Sermon on the Mount. And, and just answer the basic question. Do these two things sound alike? I think invariably you'll find probably not, given in, in some of the conversations that we're hearing. And that's because I think they're missing what Peter says, what Luther says, what the whole Bible says, is that we're both perfectly free lords and dames of all men. <laughs> And at the same time, servants of all. This is the Christian ethic. You're before God, completely justified. No heights, no depths, no length. No bad guy can ever really take it away from you. Free conscience. Before God, you're, you're a king and a queen. But in our exilic life here below, we have duties and obligations to this natural world that we're in. Paying taxes, driving the speed limit, I don't know, supporting whatever you need to support in your community and so on. This is where you serve. You lay down your life for others. You think about this. The God of the universe, maybe this is just a really easy theological principle because it's the whole Bible. He gives life and being everything to us. But he knows the end from the beginning and the way in which the climax of creation works is this. The God of heaven who is above all things, Philippians 2, submits himself to death, even on a cross, and takes to himself what is less than he is, namely humanity, because to be human is less than God. So he takes humanity to himself, is obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so the one who gave life to all things assumes a human body that can die and dies for all things. The God of the universe knew this would happen before he made everything. He must have known because he's God. And yet still made it in this way. And so the most powerful person in the conceivable, uh, allows himself to die for the sake of others, for us and for our salvation. There's no greater love than that someone lays down their life for a friend. And uh, I think that there's, there's a Christian ethic that goes beyond what is obvious to the world. And it's that perfectly free Lord, live as free people, Peter says, the aspect that we have that people can't obviously see there's something mysterious about it because it's something that goes beyond nature. Um, and those are the kind of categories I think we need to have. Now, I wanted to say a bit more, uh, I sh but let me just, just for time's sake, say, do you have questions? <laughs> because I realized I was going to say things about sphere sovereignty and so on, but maybe that's not helpful to you, but you can ask me and then I will talk about those things. So do you have any thoughts? Or yes. Well, I was just thinking through, like, the idea of having our, like, a con you know, a line drawn, it seems like the issue that I'm hearing is people have different lines that they're drawing. So how do you converse with that? And everyone have, has different issues of conscience, and that's the thing I want to hear from you, like... Yeah, so the conscience question. Yeah. <laughs> so, in, in the Bible, I think... We, like, it just, it's just in the history of how people thought about this. So conscience is distinguishable. So the conscience before God, you're completely free. It's a religious conscience. See? Like, before God, I'm clear. It doesn't matter. And so that's your religious conscience right there. Now, but we also talk about, like, you have a conscientious objection. You know, and that, what we mean by that is, like, well, I can't go to war in Vietnam kind of thing, right? So I think as Christians, we need to be really careful that we don't confuse what the Bible says about conscience particularly, 
your freedom before God, you're free. You're, you're justified. Nothing can speak against you. No, Satan's attacks, nor the law. Christ freely justifies you, and your conscience before God is open. Justin Trudeau, uh, any ruler of the world cannot touch that, even if they tried. It is an impossibility for any government to bind your conscience before God. Can't happen. But we all know they can bind our external actions. And occasionally, there's a bit of a little overlap. So you think of the three before the statue. An external action there is to lay down and worship. But the act of laying down, even though it's physical, implies your worship, right? And so there is occasionally that little bit of overlap there. And I think that's the issue where it's, I don't want to call it a gray area, but it's sort of like the area of wisdom, like where that exactly is. But to be more direct, if someone says to me, this is my, my understanding of what the Bible says in theology, my conscience says I need this particular right and freedom as guaranteed by the charter, and therefore I can't wear a mask or something like that. Well, that's not your religious conscience before God. It's a real issue. I respect it. It's a charter issue, or whatever you want to call it. It's a natural and a naturally good issue to talk about. I mean, it makes sense. But it's not a religious conscious objection, because your conscience is free before God. It's a real issue, one that takes seriously, and it might fall under a category of like conscious, conscientious objection according to the state or whatever. But it's not your religious issue. Conscience is different. And that is one of the central discoveries of the Reformation, <laughs> That your conscience is the freedom, the freedom of the Christian that Paul talks about in Galatians and, and Romans, I guess, and Luther. You're, the freedom of the Christian is your free conscience before God who justifies you freely by faith apart from any kind of external work or from any kind of obedience to like the Pope or from a system of merits and demerits to avoid or yeah, I guess to avoid purgatory and get to heaven faster. Completely free. So that's a central discovery of the Reformation. If you want to say, well, if Justin, uh, if, if our government says um, you must wear a mask, and if I do wear the mask, for example, I, I know I'm being controversial, but why not? Because this is what you want. Like, it, it, my point is because if I don't, then you never talk about the thing that actually matters, right? And I'm not, I'm not trying to be like for the sake of it, but I just kind of have to. If you make that argument, you're implying that the government can bind your conscience before God. You can't. God justifies you by faith. And so Justin Trudeau can't, even, or I guess in our case it would be Doug Ford, right? Premier Ford. He, he can't bind your conscience by wearing a mask. You're saying that some external thing the government can possibly do is within, it's within their power to bind your conscience before God. No, thank you. God is Lord. Jesus is Lord. No. So I reject that view strongly because it's a central view of the Reformation. And... I know I didn't explain it all from the Bible today, but it is, it's from Scripture. <laughs> it is scriptural. I mean, I implied a lot of it, of course. You, you read all the justification and conscience passages, you, you just see it, right? Now, you can say kind of improperly, like, I have a good conscience before men, like Paul does too. And the idea there is that, that people just view you as someone who is a holy and good person. But your conscience primarily is before God. So... That's how I'd answer it. I would just say, like, there's obviously that little area of overlap, which is like, if you physically bow down before the statue, yeah, that's external, but it, it implies, obviously, your worship. But for the most part, when it's things like masks or uh, your civil freedoms, like, simply put, civil freedoms are not religious freedoms. It's just pretty simple. Your religious freedom is your freedom from the law's condemnation for you, that Christ freely justifies you um, before God because you lived, died, and rose for your sake. So that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So it's Romans 3 that I'm kind of paraphrasing or quoting. Now, your civil freedoms are, are good and right to pursue and to, to love. But don't confuse those. If you do, it's legalism. Because if you say my civil freedom is my religious freedom, and therefore I have to have this kind of civil freedom to be truly free, you've actually bound people's consciences to civil freedoms. Like, uh, you, you can't wear a mask to be a Christian. Okay, you just bound their conscience. God doesn't. You did. Um, it's very unacceptable. That's not the gospel. Sorry, that was really strong. <laughs> uh, I, I, it's recorded, isn't it? <laughs> but it, it's, it's legalism, but I just, it's unacceptable. Now, if someone says, 
charter gives me the rights, the, the, the guarantees the freedom to assemble and to not wear a mask and so on. I'm like, I, I kind of agree. <laughs> but that's my civil freedoms, right? Like, I'm all, I, don't, I don't like wearing a mask. I don't love it. I do, though. I, don't, I dislike it strongly, and I dislike a lot of these restrictions. I'm all for pursuing those civil ends. If you want to protest, go for it. But don't make it the gospel. Don't make it your religious freedom. It's civil freedom, and that's good, and you should pursue it. But don't confuse the two. Because you confuse the kingdom of Caesar with the kingdom of God. It doesn't work. Yeah. So this is more specifically to do with worship. So like lockdowns were, were being, like right now, thankfully we're not in that position, but when churches were closed, we're commanded to worship corporately and we're not able to mm. do that. Is that, like if, should we be disobeying that? Like what is that, how does that work in? Because that is actually, like Daniel obeyed by praying. Like should we be obeying and gathering corporately when we're Great being question. told not to by the government? Yeah, that's one of the key questions. So I think to answer this question, there are three things to say. One, we want to be careful not to go back to the Roman Catholic Church position. And that position is the priest or the, the holy person, uh, the government has no say over anything, completely free from anything. So this kind of like view that if you're part of the, the Roman Church and you're a priest, government can't say anything to you. You're totally free from, from any obligations to them. The reformers said, well, no, you look at you know, Daniel, First Peter, like, no, there are obligations. You do have to, like, <laughs> even if you're a pastor, you're not totally free from, from the God. Like, that's, God ordains all authority. There's no authority except for comes from God. So if you resist that authority, you're resisting God. It's Romans. Okay, so that's there. The second thing is, well, um, can the government, like, what does it mean for a lockdown? So I think in Ontario, wasn't it always 10 people could meet, if I remember right? Generally, yeah. the, the, not the first wave, but okay. later on it was 10 So most thinkers in history have said, when there's an actual extreme plague, yeah, it's totally just and fine to lock, lock, and this happened throughout history. So I think at the very beginning of the pandemic, in my opinion, it seemed, because we didn't know, right? No one knew. Right. Like if, if like 10% of people were going to die, like, yeah, you could stay home for the month. Like this is, there's always been these kinds of exceptions. Now, after that, it gets trickier because you begin to realize, well, it is a serious issue. It's not like the Black Death, right? And so there, I think, you enter into the issue where it kind of have the overlapping kind of things. And so what I've said is my understanding of the issue is like, like so my church, um, like my, my small group, we met the entire time. We just met at church as like a religious service, or 10 people, right? And uh, my church, like I know a church in Toronto that had like 13 services of 10 people or whatever. If you can find ways to do that, and, it, and you can still worship, that's totally fine. But if you feel like, no, it's, it's an impossible way to gather, um, I think, while I disagree with you personally, I think I have to say that's okay. Because I, I, the Bible does say that we need to worship God and we gather together for worship. And so... I think there's enough freedom to disagree on the exact way of doing it. Because this one I find a little bit trickier. In Canada, for example, though we've still been able to meet, for the most part, at like 30% of building capacity. In Ontario. In, in Ontario. Quebec, they were not allowed to. They weren't allowed to, yeah. Okay. And like Alberta was, was similar. So, so there's the ones where I think it's trickier. Um, my answer, I think, my consistent answer has been, while I do think for the most part restrictions have allowed for, the, for worship still, just in, in limited capacity and numbers, and that's good. You're free to do that. If, if you feel like you actually can't worship and there's legitimate reasons for it, I'm not going to condemn you for, for that. I think it, it's, it touches that overlap area. Now, people are, don't love that view because usually you say it's one way or the other. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know. Now, I, do, I, I think it gets trickier. Like, if you can meet with 30% of building capacity, which often is actually two services because of how capacity numbers work, it's like, well, at this point, what's the issue? Like, I, don't, I don't understand. It almost feels like you're trying to be rebellious at that point. But when it's like a 10-person... So limit. I was more speaking to the situation in Quebec. Like, it's changing oh. now. But in, in, like, for example, from Christmas until, I think it was a week ago, they were not allowed to meet at all, like nothing, completely, like nothing. Um, yeah. Not, not even allowed to like enter the building, like nothing. 
So I I'm, was more speaking to that, that situation. Like I think in Ontario, like we, our church has been able to um, work within that ten decent people meeting, yeah. and, and obviously that's not ideal. But I think it's, not, it's temporary. It, it's temporary, and you know I think that's great. And I don't agree with situations like in Alberta where they're just like, oh, we must all meet all together in one service. We're gonna, you know, disregard capacity limits. Like I. I don't mm -hmm. think that's respectful mm -hmm. of the authority. I don't think it's a great witness to those around them. But I was more thinking when, like, worship is just not permitted at all. Yeah, so in Quebec. No, I don't – I was following it, but I don't remember. I feel like it was – in my brain it was shorter, but it might have been that long. Um, that one is interesting to me because – Like, Lord willing, that's not going to happen. Lord willing, that won't happen. Again, and yeah. it won't happen in Ontario, but it just – I think it's helpful to think through, like, what, what does that look like for so us I, as believers? I, from, I've been talking with a Quebec pastor for a while, and he helped me to think through this. His argument was basically, if someone in my church is dying in a home, and I'm not allowed to go there or hospital, I still might. <laughs> um, because, or so will, and because there are certain things, like, if my, if my son was cut really badly, I would speed to the hospital. But under common law, for example, and under the way that we view law and like, like that's actually part of our Canadian legal system. It's, it's not like this um, absolute statutory system here all the time. And so you're act, there, there's actually interpretation to law. And so in this case, nobody would have pursued a prosecution against me. Everyone knows, okay, you sped, but your son's badly damaged, right? So. There are certain cases like that that are actually acceptable in our law that we don't think about because we're not lawyers and so on. Now, in Quebec, I think at this point in the epidemic, when a church is closed down for that long, I think there's something really important. For, for most of us, we would say, like, your local church congregation has sort of authority to, um, like, you, you vote together, you work together, you... Uh, congregationalism, what was the right word? I can't remember the right word. Congregationalism. So for me, if a congregation all together affirms that they will, um, instead of using the vaccine passport for the sake of not doing this, we're going to move to some other platform online or, or a pause for three or four weeks, then I think I can't say too much against that because congregationalism is as such that my personal, I can give a personal opinion, but I can't give an ecclesial opinion because of our ecclesiology. And I think that's an important distinction to have. So... Yeah, you are commanded to worship, but you just have to find the Bible verse that says you need to worship on Sunday between 10 a.m. and 11.30 a.m. with this X amount of people in this Y amount of setting. And if you find that Bible verse, then I'll, okay. But the Bible verse doesn't exist. It doesn't tell you how many numbers of people need to meet. or on. Well, it assumes you'll meet on the Lord's Day, but it's not like you have to meet on Sunday morning only kind of thing. It doesn't say you have to meet in a church building. So those Bible verses don't exist, and therefore... I think a local church can make that decision and still, I, my opinion, I have it, but I can be like, you know what? Okay, blessings to you. I'm over time. I need to pick up your children. I'm supposed, I wish I had a little bit more time to talk about the sphere summer stuff, but maybe, maybe that's just jargon that's not that helpful. Maybe this is more helpful. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.